Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before we get to today's guest, I want to give listeners a heads up. Today's guest is Branko Milanovic. And we are talking about his book, Capitalism Alone, which contrasts American capitalism with Chinese capitalism. This was recorded on February 14th, 2020, relatively far in advance, roughly three months before its release on May 11th. If we were recording this today, I would certainly have asked for Branko's thoughts on how China has handled COVID-19. But it just wasn't front of mind in mid-February when there had been only 15 cases of COVID-19 in the United States. So unfortunately, while Branko has many interesting insights into the Chinese economic and political system in our conversation, nothing here relates to COVID-19. For some of you, that's a feature, not a bug. Either way, I wanted you to know that I wasn't ignoring a large elephant in the room on February 14th, 2020. I knew about the elephant, but it certainly hadn't come into the room. Not surprisingly, since recording this Econ Talk interview, Branko has written about the response of China to the virus. You can find those articles in the Delve Deeper section of the homepage for this episode at econtalk.org. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today is February 14th, 2020, and my guest is author and economist Branko Milanovic. He is a visiting presidential professor at the Graduate Center, City University of New York, and a senior scholar at the Stone Center on Socioeconomic Inequality. For 20 years, he was the lead economist at the World Bank's research department. His latest book and the subject of today's conversation is Capitalism Alone, the Future of the System that Rules the World. Branko, welcome to EconTalk. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, your book talks about two different kinds of capitalism – on the one hand, liberal and merit- meritocratic, and the other is you call political capitalism. Uh, talk about the difference between those two systems and which countries embody them and you, that you focus on in the book. Yeah, the, the countries that embody them and actually the data that I use for, to illustrate the two systems uh, come uh, uh, first, obviously, for meritocratic and liberal capitalism from the United States, where we actually have probably in the area that I work on, which is inequality, probably the best data or most detailed data. And the country which illustrates political capitalism is China, where, of course, I use quite a lot of Chinese data and um, I um, make uh, sort of the structure of the two chapters that deal with uh, with the U.S. on the one hand and China on the other hand are relatively similar because the objective of the two chapters is to look at uh, the forces of inequality, be it inequality in wealth or opportunity or income, which might lead to the creation of a self-sustained upper class in both systems. So that's, uh, you know, the, the, the structure of the book. Now, the two systems differ. I mean, first, they are similar in the sense they are both capitalists. That's my argument. And actually, as you said, even the title in the book, in, of the book is kind of makes this obvious because it says capitalism, alone, meaning the capitalism is the only economic system which exists today. 
And uh, but they are also different, obviously, in the political space because the political space of a liberal or meritocratic capitalism is essentially democratic. Uh, the political space of uh, of Chinese type or political capitalism is not democratic. It's a it's a one party system where the state has much more of a preponderant political role and, to some extent, to a large extent, also a more preponderant economic role. And your description of capitalism. Mm. Uh, I'll try to remember it first. You can correct me and then add to it. Uh, it's decentralized in terms of economic decisions. Uh, labor is hired at wage rates in a somewhat open market. Uh, prices are somewhat free to adjust and steer resources. Uh, investment is made privately. And so if I left anything out, tell me, and how do you reconcile that with China, where a lot of investments clearly uh, – not private, and I also wonder about how decentralized economic decision-making is there. I simply don't know. Something I, I think about a lot. Yeah, actually, the way that you define it is, I think, almost fully correct. Um, but let me say first that the definition is not mine. It's actually the definition is a, a sort of a standard definition that was used by, by Marx, was used by Max Weber afterwards. And I think it's a very economical definition of capitalism. It includes, as you said, it includes uh, uh, first decentralized coordination. Secondly, legally free labor. That's very important because in the past, the labor was not legally free very often. But that labor is hired labor. Now, the term hired labor is also important because it means that labor is not exercising entrepreneurial function, which, in other words, it's not workers who decide we are going to produce, you know, this and that gadget. It is, and that's the third uh, sort of definitional part, it is capitalists who decide on that, who have entrepreneurial function, and it is being produced, I mean, the, the conduct, um, economic life is conducted using privately owned capital and profit principle. So this is the definition. Now, you ask, and many people ask now, how does it apply to China? It's more or less clear that it applies to the U.S. because actually all the three elements are, I think, very clear in the case of liberal capitalism. Uh, my argument, and it's based on, on facts, so it's not really what I think China does or what I don't think, but I simply look first, what percentage of labor force is working as self-employed, because in agriculture in China it's mostly self-employed, and in the private sector. And there you actually find that in 78, for example, when you had still the commune system in China, in agriculture, you had about 85%, I think, of labor that was state, I mean, working the state-owned or commune system in, in, in agriculture. Well, that percentage now is less than 10%. So you really have had a tremendous change of first privatization, be it privatization in the sense that there are large private companies or middle-sized private companies or finally private individuals, mostly peasants, farmers producing on their own land. Uh, then I look at um, a percentage of uh, uh, private fixed investments. Now, that percentage also has changed. There is a very nice uh, graph in a book which basically shows it's like an, like an X, like a cross. So you basically start with like 80-20 ratio between public and private, and you end up, nowadays it is about 60-40 in favor of um, private. And finally, I, I look at the value added produced in the private sector in China. There was a recent study 
because that number was not actually quite well known, and it's very murky in the Chinese statistics. I've actually spent lots of time looking at statistical yearbooks of China, but there are so many different types of enterprises. I'll just mention township and village enterprises, for, uh, joint companies with foreign ownership, but joint companies with foreign ownership, and state ownership, whether it is a local level, township level, city level, municipal level, you know, central level, whatever. Anyway, the World Bank did recently a very nice study which tried to disentangle basically all of that. And they came down with an estimate which is the range, I think, is between 21 and 28 percent of the value added being produced in the state sector. So that, of course, leaves more than 75 percent or around 75 percent of value added in a private. This is a long answer, but I think basically if you look at the numbers, it's very difficult to argue that China is not a capitalist country. So we're going to get into China a little bit later, and we're also going to get into some of the more philosophical and <clears throat> my favorite part of the book, uh, unusual, came at the end. Uh, usually the first third of a book is, is the best part, and then if you're lucky that you learn something after that. Not always. In this case, I learned something in the first third, but I learned most in the second two-thirds, which was just fabulous. Uh, I really loved the range of ideas in the book. Uh, but you start, and we'll start, with discussion of inequality in the United States. And listeners know I'm somewhat skeptical of that data, mainly because I think it's a little bit misleading, or at least it's been used in misleading ways, that inequality at a point in time it doesn't always tell you, often deceives you as to what's been happening to people over time. And it leads to people saying that the bottom X percent, 50 percent sometimes, sometimes 90 percent, have made no progress in the United States. Um, you seem to be somewhat sympathetic to those claims of, of uh, I'll call it stagnation. Um, talk about that. Clearly, the top today is farther away from the bottom today uh, than it was 50 years ago. But do you believe that, quote, all the gains of the last 50 years or 40 years or 30 years have gone to the top? There's numbers that suggest that. But I think those numbers are misleading because of family change. And in difficulties in measuring um, uh, inflation correctly, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, this is a very difficult question. As I mentioned before, of course, I think that the U.S. has um, probably the best data on income inequality. You know, I've been working on income inequality for like three decades now. However, it has become a big political topic in the last maybe, I don't know, seven, eight, maybe ten years. And then it has led to a proliferation of studies that actually, whether from the left or right, actually claim very different different things. You know, uh, you can always uh, uh, use the data in a way which would kind of support your priors. You know, <laughs> very often you you use the assumptions. Uh, that uh, would lead you to actually to get the results that you a priori believe are the correct results. Let me then address your Such question. Such a cynic. <laughs> uh, we, you know, this is the truth because the, the so. data are obviously Sometimes. not, uh, you know, you, when you, you really deal here with definitions, you know. And uh, let me just give you, for example, I mean, answering your question, let me just um, mention some of the issues that we face. First of all, it is true that when we look at inequality and any number, and we say, okay, that's the share of the top 1%, top 10%. This is the Gini coefficient, which is a measure of inequality. We are uh, taking a snapshot picture. 
So uh, part of inequality may be due simply to the life cycle element. You know, you have young people, you have in the past old people who are now actually doing much better than in the past, but in the past they used to be relatively poor. So you take a snapshot and you actually find people there who are, they suppose, relatively poor and they increase inequality, but they are also at the life cycle in their lives. They are in a position where their incomes are relatively low. So it doesn't mean that they would actually over a lifetime have equally low income. That was the point which I think for maybe your listeners is very nicely illustrated by Joseph Schumpeter, who in the 19, uh, 1950s said, actually, imagine that the inequality, when you measure it, it's like a hotel. And in that hotel, you have people at the top floors who are the rich people, and you see that particular night, you look at them, and you say, okay, there are such and such people on top floor, there are such and such people on the bottom floor. But he said, let's take another night, and if these people change rooms, so people from the top go in the middle, or maybe people from the bottom go to the you know, middle or the top, then you would, of course, have a very different picture over time. And that's indeed the case. These are so-called longitudinal studies, but they're really very difficult to do because you really have to have people stay there and report their incomes and expenditures for years, and people normally don't do that. So we still use these snapshots. Now, the snapshots are still useful because they tell you, for example, that the top 1% on the U.S. or this Gini coefficient which is used has now increased to a level where it was not probably for the last 50 years. I'm not saying that it's the same as some people argue. It's not the same as... Uh, around uh, World War One, because at that time, uh, it, I think it's somewhat of a mistake because that's measuring only incomes without government transfers and taxes. And as you know, the tax uh, direct taxation was introduced in 1915, so it's actually after that, and of course, it increased tremendously. So, you know, if you don't take it into account, you, you will actually overestimate inequality. Nevertheless, when you actually do, I think, appropriate uh, adjustment because you look at the after-tax income, you find that it is certainly high now. And if you compare today with 1970s or 1980s, it is significantly higher. So it is true in that sense that the top 1% has now wider or greater share of total income than it had 30 or 40 years ago. Are they the same people? Probably not. So there is lots of churning, lots of change. So that particular criticism, I think, is accurate. There are also many changes that one you sort of mentioned. For example, that was one issue that I had with uh, Chetty and other studies, is that actually they look at uh, household income. Now, household in the U.S. has changed. You know, it, has, it was larger, now it is smaller. So obviously, if you do not correct for at least per capita, uh, per, per individual member, then you, of course, exaggerate uh, the, the um, uh, you exaggerate the increase in inequality because of a change in household size. Yeah, the, the mistake I think people make when they hear that, what you said is, of course, true, but when they hear that, oh, households are smaller, they think, well, people are having fewer children. That is true, but the important change here is that people are less likely to be married. There are many more single-person households, and in those single-person households, there are often fewer people working. That one person sometimes is old uh, as, as the baby boomers get older. And I've, I've quoted this statistic before. The household income of the top quintile at a point in time in recent years was 17 times, 17 times the average of the bottom quintile. Uh, of course, the average, uh, the average family household in the top quintile had two earners. Uh, a little more than two, actually, right, because there's right. be a teenager often working. The average family in the bottom quintile had about a half a worker working, a little less than half, 0.45 earners. 
because many of them aren't working. So this, when you correct for that, so it's still now it's four times higher. Is that roughly? Is that raw? Is that is that horrible? Well, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But the, I mean, you can't decide it. But the point is, is that when you're looking at changes, if you don't correct for that demographic change over time, you're going to get a very misleading uh, effect. Now, having said that, what you said, the, the caveats, you also are, are worried about the level of inequality in the United States. Um, and I, th- I think the central question for me, and I just you don't talk about this much in the book, is this claim that that the current economic system in the United States is rigged, that somehow the the rich have figured out a way to keep everything for themselves. And I think well, I think that's literally wrong for 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 a lot of reasons. But it does fuel political uh, anger, uh, this feeling that that could be true. And you often, in the first third of the book, talk about the things we might do to change inequality. Are you worried about the the level of opportunity for for people who aren't in the top 1%, Yes, I think I'm worried, actually. I would say, uh, let me try to explain my, my thinking there. First of all, I believe that actually inequalities, we were just saying minutes ago, has now become much higher. And in the work that I do, partly because I've been doing that always, you know, in the World Bank as well, I'm using a per capita measurement. In other words, I do not look at family or household as such, regardless of the number of people, but divided by the number of people. I, when I mentioned the World Bank, I think it's important to, to keep in mind that when you work with vastly dissimilar households in different countries, you cannot take Mali with nine persons per household and treat it the same way that you treat like one-person households in Sweden. So obviously you have to correct for the household size. So I do the same thing with, for the United States. So that's actually taken in account, into account. But now, starting from that, what I'm actually worried is the following. If inequality now is very high, and if we have an increasing situation of what I call homoplutia, which is a new phenomenon, which actually basically I think it's the first time actually mentioned in my book, is that you have an increasing proportion of people who are both rich in terms of income from capital and income from labor. That's something absolutely new because if you look at the, sort of let's look at the classical British capitalism or even United States capitalism in the 1920s, you didn't have large capitalists who were also workers receiving a salary. It didn't exist. If they were actually rich, they were actually basically having capital income and that was it. On the other hand, you also didn't have workers who had capital income because their entire income was derived from labor. And just trying to subsistence, just staying alive was was a challenge. They weren't saving a lot of money, building up a nest egg, building up financial assets in the past very much. Absolutely. So now we have a different situation. So now we have actually much, many more people who have both labor and capital income and who are actually rich in the space on labor and capital. We'll come maybe discuss that a little bit further because my, one of the ideas that I have when I talked about uh, what I think could be improved or should be improved is uh, much more widespread ownership of capital in the middle class. But I'll leave that for the, for the later because this is part of recommendations maybe. Yeah, we'll get to that in a sec. Yeah. Go ahead, fin- finish yeah, your work. But what I mean actually then why I'm worried is that that particular inequality and that particular type of inequality when you have actually hardworking people who are actually both capital and labor rich leads to inequality of opportunities simply because you have many of the things in the U.S., including schooling, which has become very expensive and very often unaffordable for the middle class. Secondly, the rich are able to influence the political process 
enormously more than the middle class and the poor. And we have empirical studies there, you know, from uh, Gillens and others who have actually uh, political science professors who have found that generally the issues that matter to the rich get debated and acted upon much more frequently than the issues that matter to the poor or to the middle class. And in that sense, I think that I didn't use the word rigged because I think it's a little bit strong. But I think the system actually favors the interests of the rich and then the rich tend, which is actually natural because everybody wants really to preserve their own power, tend to, uh, through regulation and government uh, decision-making and the Congress and so on, introduce the rules that are in their own advantage. And the danger of that is that you might end up with something what they called before a self-sustaining upper class that would essentially be reproduced from generation to generation. So I think we agree on the self-sustaining part in the sense that I think I think this is mostly a feature, not a bug. I, I think it's hard to leapfrog other people in the United States. Uh, you know, I've mentioned this many times on the program before. Um, I first person in my family to get an advanced degree. I'm the second person I think to go to college. Um, my kids are going to do fine. They went. They've all either been to college. They will probably the two that are in college. I expect will finish college. They have a good life. I have lots of connections for them. In addition to the human capital I've given them is directly, forget the education, all the stuff they they got, they were, for better or for worse, the, the drive, the ambition, the persistence. They get a lot of advantages by growing up in my house. It, some of those are curses too, of course, but that's not the point. Um, but my point is, is that they will – I'm in the top 20%. They will – probably be in the top 20% unless they choose not to be, which they may choose not to be. They, they're free to do that. And I respect them deeply if they chose not to be interested in making lots of money. I didn't plan on it. I got lucky. Um, being an academic in 1980 wasn't so lucrative, and it's turned out to be lucrative. But my point is, is that it's going to be hard for somebody who's not in the top 20% to, to go ahead of my kids. Um, however, I do think a lot of them still have lots of chances. I don't see... The political system, other than things like you know covered, um, you know carried interest in certain minute provisions of the tax code, which certainly help rich people in, in all kinds of ways, or you could talk about the maybe the behavior of the Federal Reserve to help rich people. Certain there are bailouts that help rich people. Certainly, there are many policies that have made my salary higher than it should be. The subsidies to education, perhaps well intentioned, perhaps not. Right, so there are lots of subsidies and, and things that help rich people, but there are lots of things that don't. And, and, and so it, I think it's really. And when you have the top 1%, the United States paying about 40% of the income tax revenue, it's hard to argue that they're in control. Yes, they have a lot more power than the average person elsewhere. Yes, they get some of their pet things through. Yes, they get better police service by far. Yes, they get better public education and they can supplement it with private. And we'll talk about that. But the idea that somehow the economic system day to day in terms of both you know entrepreneurship, the innovation that's taking place in the United States – and its availability to enormous parts of the population, the retail revolution of Walmart and now Amazon that's benefited everybody, almost everybody. I just, for me, I just, I, I find that it's, it's, maybe it's a half empty, half full distinction here, but I, I find it, um, I don't think we should be overly pessimistic about the current state of political power to, to sustain uh, the advantages of the upper class. Well, largely, I agree with you, actually, all the elements that you have uh, listed, which, you know, 
sort of um, favor the rich, I will not going to repeat them because I agree with all of them. I think that the, there is an issue of, of judgment where uh, the question becomes whether we believe that the issues that you mentioned, and I said, you know, I totally agree with them, are sufficiently important to make the opportunity of those who are in the middle, and I actually really emphasize in the middle because it is very clear that a middle-income family in the United States now really has hard time uh, sending the kids to the schools which are like top schools and the issue there is that these top schools, I'm not talking only Ivy League, you know, I'm talking really basically of the top 100 colleges that are expensive and the issue there is that their expense is not only the quality I mean, I will leave aside the quality, maybe they are actually better in quality, but in reality, they're basically a stamp of approval saying, well, I went to such and such college and thereby I command higher uh, salary and actually there are studies for that that show that of course the, the salary differentials are very large depending where you went doesn't mean that you're much smarter doesn't mean that you're much better but actually you went there mm-hmm. and also of course could be just measuring the selection bias of the people who were able to get in but that's no no absolutely true you it's know, hard to the, know we actually <laughs> and of course when you look at the, the, the studies that show percentage of people who go oh, to the top schools and where the parents come from of course you have I think actually I mentioned that in my book that's not my own Number. I actually took it from somebody else. Is the ratio is sixty to one between the top one percent and and the, and the middle class? So obviously the kids from the top um, uh, families that are actually at the top uh, income group, it could be one percent or five percent, have much greater likelihood to be there. Now, as you mentioned, also it's not only, and I think it's very important. It's not only the advantages of. Uh, uh, inheritance of financial assets, which of course they would inherit, financial assets and housing and all of that. And the second level of advantage is the advantages that you get in school because very often the rich parents of course have many more opportunities to actually teach certain things to the kids, which is quite well known. I mean, even, even the vocabulary of kids who are born and who live in richer households is much more, is greater. And the third advantage, which I believe is very important one, is the advantage of connection and information. And having come from, of course, a very different environment, mm-hmm. I've actually, and having kids in the U.S., I see an incredible advantage of what is called information. I will give you an example of when I was when I studied, actually, undergraduate in Yugoslavia. And when I read, we had this, actually a class which is called cybernetics. So it was, I think, Norbert Weber. And one of the things that... Wiener, I think it was Norbert Wiener. Wiener, Wiener yeah. yes, Wiener. One of the things that we learned there was actually the power of information. Now, for me, it was very difficult to understand concretely what it meant. Uh, what is the power of information? Because uh, the society was entirely different. Nowadays, when I tell somebody the power of information is so crucial, I totally see it because you, if you're not plugged in, if you don't have good connections, you will not even know that such and such job exists. You would even not know how to apply for a school. And let me give you one small example for that, which I think may be interesting. This is a friend of mine, French uh, friend, who actually had a nef- uh, niece uh, who did extremely well. They are also rich in France. You know, they, she did very well. The niece did very well in, in a top school, I think high school in France or something. So she comes to apply to the U.S. and comes really simply with, like, excellent grades. Of course, she gets immediately rejected because what they didn't know, that's, again, information, a power information, in order to get accepted to these schools, 
it's not sufficient just for you to have good grades. You have to show some special talent. Maybe yeah. you're jumping for the parachute. Maybe you have led the expedition to the North Pole, something. Cured cancer. Cured cancer, whatever. So you see, that's the information which they even in a very fancy school in France, they didn't know that information. Yeah. And I think that's what kids that are actually uh, raised in rich families do know. So I, I'll just say one thing about that. I just, you know, college attendance is way up. College graduation, not so way up. You know, getting in is as important as finishing, and finishing is still pretty hard. And I think we've subsidized through loans mistakenly. Lots of people going to college with not much return. So I, I think it's a yeah. complicated issue. I agree. But the one thing I want to I, I want to make sure we mention on, about inequality that you point out that I think is often forgotten, and then then we're, I want to change the topic. But one thing I want to point out is the um, what's called positive assortative mating. I haven't mentioned it much mm-hmm. on the program, but it's an important part of the little section of your book, which is that not only does this doctor have a uh, a very nice set of financial assets to her name, she's also married to another doctor. So we have two people who are very similar marrying each other, both wealthy. Uh, I think you know marriage is a very endangered institution right now in America. If you look at uh, the median income for married couples, where typically both people are working, that's grown pretty nicely over the last 40 years. The, cha- the interesting part is that there are not so many of those folks. You know, people say, well, you have to have two incomes to, to, to really to have a middle-class lifestyle before you used to have one. That, uh, could be, but it turns out there aren't the, num- the proportion of households that are, two, that are married is about the same. It's actually a little bit lower until recently compared to 40 years ago. And so it's true that in a married household, a woman is much more likely to work and now is much more likely to be of a high education level married to a high education man. That's the positive assortative mating point. So they both have high income. They probably both have some assets that they together save a bunch more. Uh, but that phenomenon is is very different than, than, say, it was in 1970 or 1980 when <clears throat> it's true the, the female labor force participation rate was much lower, but there also were a lot more married couples. So now we have a lot more, within a married couple, a lot more women working, but many fewer married couples. So it's a very complicated point, and and you make the point that this probably accounts, in one study you quote, it's right, but maybe a third of the inequality is due to the fact that high-income people are marrying other high-income people. Yeah, I'm very glad that you brought this up because really one of the objectives of my uh, part of the book which deals with liberal capitalism was to not only highlight an, uh, increasing inequality and the problems that it leads to, and we didn't even come to the pol- other political <laughs> issues like you yeah. know who is running in campaigns these days, but I wanted to highlight two uh, aspects, two phenomena. The first one, the fact that actually what I mentioned already that the, the people, um, rich people uh, are very often rich in terms of uh, capital income and labor income. And secondly, that there is increasing uh, assortative, positive assortative mating, meaning that actually people who are highly educated marry each other, and then these are actually people with very high incomes. Now, why I bring this up, and I'll tell you a little bit more, more about assortative mating, but why I bring these two issues up is because I wanted to highlight, first, they're important. Secondly, I wanted to highlight when we talk about inequality, it's not very easy often to deal with it. I mean, why should you penalize people who marry each other? <laughs> you know, they, they, they love each other, they like actually people who are more similar to them. And it's not an indictment of the economic system if those folks get married and 
that grows measured inequality. No, no, absolutely not. So that's what, you know, that's one reason. The second one, even when you come to what I called homoplutia, you know, the fact that they have this, uh, people have a high capital labor income, that too is very difficult to deal with because on an ethical level, it's easier to deal with people who were only capitalists and basically, let's suppose they were just, you know, investing or they would give their all the money to somebody else to invest and they do nothing. Here you have actually... Empirically, we know that people with higher income work more hours than people with middle-level income or uh, or low income. So uh, you then have really an ethical problem. Uh, Should you really very strongly penalize people who are working like 70 hours a week rather than 40? Married to another workaholic, working 70 hours a week, and then saving some of it. Investing it in a very simple mutual fund, not taking a big risk, but steadily accumulating more assets over time. Absolutely. I agree. And so let me just give you, for example, I think it's interesting, the, the, the facts on the assortative mating. The facts, actually, I looked at the, the cohorts of young, um, first American males, men, between the ages of 20 and 35 in 1970. And I looked at people who were in the top uh, wage group. They were as likely to marry another woman from a top uh, wage group as to marry somebody from the bottom. So the ratio was one to one. Well, nowadays for males, it's three to one. So they are three times as likely to marry a woman who is also from the same top income group as the uh, as woman who is from the bottom. But for women, it's even more dramatic. The okay. change is five to one. Yeah. It used to be one to one, and it's now five to one. Essentially, people actually, uh, and I think that's quite understandable, I have to say myself, I've sort of made similar assortative mating arrangement, is that actually people tend to marry, particularly when they go to school, uh, the, the age of marriage is postponed. They meet people who have with whom they share similar interests, similar affinities, similar values, and they marry each other. Experiences, and they marry each other. So there is nothing wrong about that. On the contrary, I think it's actually good development. But on the other hand, it does have the implication of rising inequality. Yeah. And, you know, at the other extreme, you're talking about things that are, you know, I think are lovely. People are free to choose them. Uh, You know, some people complain that people read to their kids before they go to bed. That gives them an unfair advantage also, which it does, I'm sure, if that if it is indeed the case that poor people don't read to their kids either because they're tired, don't know that it's important. Maybe it's not important. I don't even know. Mm-hmm. But, but I do think it's a very – I like to think it is, but I but mainly to be a better human being, not to be richer. Um, so I, I want to I shift gears I, I, radically, and I want to look at China because what you have to say about China was utterly fascinating to me and, and just opened up a, a whole different way of thinking about it. Um, in particular, your emphasis on the inevitability, the inevitability of corruption. So we've had a program here in the, you know, on EconTalk last year with Mike Munger. We talked about whether capitalism is inevitably likely to lead to crony capitalism and the sort of special treatment of special interests. It's uh, an interesting question. There's no simple answer, but well, you suggest that in the Chinese system, corruption is almost baked in. Now, give us some idea, first of all, of how we know about the corruption. Some of the stories you tell are extraordinary, <laughs> uh, like uh, unbelievable, and why you suggest that it's there's a tension in the system between you know too much corruption and and the inevitability of there has to going to always going to be some. Um, <clears throat> First, I start with the fact that actually the for political capitalism to be successful, it needs to generate high rates of growth. Uh, 
which we know in the case of China. But we know it also in the case of Vietnam, Ethiopia now, Rwanda, and so on. So there are more countries than only China. However, China, obviously, like the U.S. in the other case, is the most prototypical or most important uh, case, our most important example. Uh, now, in order to do that, China and similar countries need to have, especially China, have to have a very efficient uh, bureaucracy of almost Weberian type. In other words, people who go and make decisions which are clever decisions and which follow certain rules, not necessarily laws, but certain rules. Singapore is the best example of that, the best bureaucracy in the world, you know, extremely efficient. On the other hand, because of the preponderant role of the state and because of the state not allowing for the formation of uh, independent groups, and that was the case in China, it seems, historically, that's also something that Fukuyama mentioned in his Origins of Political Order, precautious state formation in China. They have to maintain ability to uh, make discrete decisions which might go against the rules. So in other words, if you have somebody who has made money in a way that you don't like or maybe has written an article that you don't like, or we have this case of a guy who was uh, kidnapped from the hotel in Hong Kong who was a manager of the funds of the top Chinese uh, um, uh, politicians and who was then starting to talk too much about that, then you really have to use extra legal means. Now, the contrast is here very, think, clear, is between the need to follow the rules, which is important for economic growth. Decision-making, looking into the future. Absolutely. And the need that you should always keep in the background ability to punish somebody or to subsidize somebody. And the, why corruption, in my opinion, is inherent to such a system is because it appears exactly there between that inability to have rule of law, and actually all my definitions of the political capitalism is really absence of rule of law, uh, existence of laws, but absence of rule of law, and the, the need for discretionary decision-making. Yeah, so <clears throat> just to try to expand on that a little bit, uh, there are a lot of rules – but they're flexible, which which has if you have a great bureaucracy, you know it's kind of like being a parent. You have a, you have a certain yeah. set of rules in the home. You know, a certain situation. You know, the kid was under a tremendous amount of stress. You might not punish the way you always do. You might give them a little bit of extra money in a situation where you know they're they're really st- stretched. Uh, that worked great in a family. It works pretty well in a bureaucracy of skilled people, but it does lead to a human temptation there. Absolutely, and actually the the state would never relinquish that role because that role is absolutely crucial if the state wants to impose uh, decisions that it likes. I also use examples of China, I use examples of Russia. You had uh, people like, for example, Khodorovsky who who were oligarchs like other oligarchs, but at some point they get in the opposition to the current government, and of course then they get punished. If he had not done that, he would be prospering like other people who are in Russia or elsewhere making money. So, you know, you always, the state needs to have that, and I think that's inevitable. That's actually not only inevitable, but it's actually part of the setup of the system. 
And then, of course, you look at the data on corruption in China, which we now now have the anti-corruption campaign. And this is actually the, the examples that they took were from the official publication where they detailed the corruption and the cases they have actually sort of uncovered. And these are really amazing things like uh, that story which uh, uh, says that they, they, they found so much um, uh, banknotes in a guy's uh, uh, basement that they brought, I think, number of, that number of uh, money counting machines were actually burned down, you know, because they just couldn't <laughs> handle that many banknotes. And I think it weighed, was it a ton? Yes, it's a like ton a of gold. A ton, a ton. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, so these are really the official numbers. And then the other source of data also for corruption is also official numbers because the Chinese publish uh, thousands of cases where they, uh, with the detailed information about how much money was apparently stolen, whether it was a criminal organization, an individual, how many years it lasted. And what is interesting there, and I divided them into three groups by the level, territorial level. So actually a low level with the county and the highest level is the province. And what obviously you find is that obviously embezzlement is higher, the higher is the level, because essentially the functions at the high level give you greater advantage to embezzle. So obviously you're not going to embezzle that much in a small village as you would embezzle in Shanghai. But what is also interesting at each of those levels, the party positions uh, and guys who were in the party positions versus the guys who were in the government position dealing with businesses and so on, party positions embezzled more. And that also is indicative where the power is. Because again, if you have two same, two guys who are maybe the same position, one is the government office and the other is the party office, then the party office gives you greater political and then economic power. And obviously then you're able to actually make more money or to sell the positions for more money. So here, here's the puzzle for me. <clears throat> you know, the old joke, it's a joke I bond up for a lot of reasons. And the, the old joke in the Soviet Union was, Talking, the worker would say, we pretend to work and they pretend to pay us. So in that system, uh, output, you know, they would they'd give you some output requirement. Uh, it would be specified in, in, in tons or pounds and they'd make really poor quality stuff that weighed a lot. So there were all kinds of breakdowns because there's no profit and loss system. We understand that doesn't work very well. And of course, the powerful people in that system skimmed any profit they could. There was a ton of corruption. Sorry, it's a lot of corruption in that system that made economic activity uh, ineffective. So how are the Chinese overcoming that? How are they able, given those temptations and given that we know that many people have given into them, how is anything getting produced there? What's sustaining the economic growth that, that at least we think is happening? No, but there I would disagree with you because I think the comparison between the Soviet Union and China is, is quite inappropriate because China is a capitalist country. And a capitalist country where I was, as I was saying, as actually corruption is endemic to the system. The uh, coordination is decentralized. People make their own profit, you know. So that all the things which didn't exist in the Soviet Union because in the Soviet Union you had, of course, all nationalized. So where's the... Where's the what's the na- I guess better question then is what's the nature of the corruption is it is it a an American firm bribing an official to get a special treatment is it what's going on do we know I think that actually the corruption is so endemic and so inbuilt in the system that m- lots of decision making requires sort of you know 
giving money in order that the decisions would be made in your favor. Now, you know, I'm thinking, let me just put it in general terms, I'm thinking that corruption, uh, we are, um, how should I say, having too much of a moralistic attitude towards corruption. I mentioned, for example, India, and, and there was a beautiful book calling The Eruption of Delhi by Rana Dasgupta, which details, and of course now you have also, I mean, either one, it was called um, uh, 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 The Billionaire Raj, India is also extremely corrupt. And in some cases, you can actually argue that the corruption is necessary in order to actually activity to take, to take place at all. Now, it is necessary it's because... the cost of doing business. cost of yeah. doing business, and actually, <laughs> but the rules, of course, are badly done. And in order for these rules to be circumvented, you have to corrupt people. Now, ideally, the rules would not be so badly done. You, the rules would be better done, so you would not need to do that. But in cases where actually the rules exist in such a way to discourage economic activity, you do have to have corruption. Now, in China, the corruption, let me put an, mention one more thing, that actually this view of corruption that I put forward in the book is important also because we then actually are able to see this anti-corruption campaign in its own context. And I think the context is the following. Corruption is endemic to the system. But if you let corruption like a river overflow on all sides, that system would eventually tend to collapse because it would actually, the discrepancy between what it says and what it does would be so large that people would really get mad and actually you would have political problems. So you need, and that's what I think the President Xi is doing, is you need to keep the corruption within the riverbed. So mm-hmm. don't let it overflow, keep it within the riverbed and then may, keep it within the manageable proportions. So why I think we, we would, if China continues going the way that it is going now, we would see that kind of anti-corruption drives every 10 or 20 or years simply because they would tend to overflow and then you have really to put them back. Yeah. Let me ask a different question about the Chinese system. Uh, it's a Hayekian question. Um, you're, the way I would describe your sort of thumbnail sketch of the Chinese system is that, as you point out earlier, two-thirds to three-quarters is decentralized. Uh, the part that's not decentralized tends to be infrastructure. It's it's real estate buildings, uh, high-speed trains, new cities springing up out of nowhere. And I think a lot of Americans romanticize the Chinese bureaucracy, which you don't, obviously, but you have a lot of respect for it. How are they possibly – let's pretend there's no corruption. Let's pretend all they're doing is brilliantly <clears throat> laying out the infrastructure allowed this private sector to thrive with the party taking some cream off the top in various ways, whether it's corruption or not, doesn't matter, taxes, doesn't matter, power, all kinds of things are flowing from that. But why would we think as economists that the this 25% that's left, which is really the underpinning of the whole system, the – the, the foundations of it, that it would be well done. How are they able to do that given that they don't have prices? They don't, right? They're making allocation decisions. I have no idea how they're doing it on a you know, day-to-day basis, but we normally would say that's hard to do and they're going to make a lot of mistakes. And how are they getting these high rates of growth? Is it just that they're starting at a low rate or they actually have a thriving capitalist system? 
Well, partly because, of course, as you said, actually, they have started from a low position. But, of course, now they are middle-income country. (laughs) And in many branches, like top technological branches, they are actually now among leading countries. Actually, they are competing with the U.S. at that technological level, which nobody really expected even 10 or 15 years ago. Because people talked then, I can remind you of that, people talked about whether China would be able to move into, you know, higher value added production, moving from toys to into really higher. They're all farmers anyway. Yes, and now, of course, they are in some areas like green technologies, like artificial intelligence and so on, like uh, 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 G5 and things like that. Uh, they are actually ahead of practically everybody else. So it has been transformed. Now, I don't know. I mean, I cannot tell you the answer how they do it exactly, but clearly they have had, I mean, extremely high growth rates. And I want to mention that something which is also forgotten because it's, we have got so much used to China being uh, growing at, you know, 8%. It used to be now at 6% and so forth that we forget that never in history, I'm actually not using these words very carefully, never in history history has there been a growth which was self which was sustained for almost half a century of more than a billion people that was something unimaginable so that was uh, you know something which i believe uh, means that uh, generally speaking, the countries that are most successful over a given period of time tend either to project their model outside, and that's what they discussed in the China chapter, whether China would actually be willing to do that or is interested. And secondly, they naturally have imitators. So the advantage that China presents for the imitators is twofold. Once they say, the elites say, well, look, actually, we don't need really maybe democracy and all these rules of law and stuff like that, because if we actually can manage our countries well and people's incomes rise and people are quite happy, we can even organize something which would look like an election, but basically will never be overthrown. And, you know, that's the advantage from the elite point of view. The advantage from the uh, people's point of view as something that I actually believe is that people are willing to trade Uh, some of uh, political powers for economic gain. And they might say, uh, rather than endlessly disagree or agree on things like, you know, whatever it is, we actually really care about our income, our our pocketbook, and we are quite willing to actually, uh, even if people don't say that openly, but de facto they'll be quite willing to trade off you know, uh, political powers, uh, a political uh, power of decision-making for some income. And there where I disagree, for example, but it's, of course, lexicographical in Rawls, Rawls, John Rawls, the political philosopher, says we, we do not allow for such trade-offs. In other words, these are the primary goods. The first primary good is actually uh, freedom, political and social freedom. And then, of course, we don't allow for the trade-off between economics and uh, freedom. And last point, you know, it, it, we think of China, but really similar trade-offs have existed in the past. I mean, Chile under Pinochet had a very similar trade-off. And that trade-off even continued under democratic uh, constitution, which, of course, inherited lots of Pinochet-like parts. So, you know, that trade-off, even in Russia, actually, under Putin, the first part of Putin's uh, rule, that was a very clear trade-off. He took a country which was really practically being destroyed and uh, brought uh, middle class, uh, had a rate of growth of 6%. So it was quite actually good. I think people... Have a thirst for tyrants, um, tragically, but I think it's a real thing. If they think that tyrant will not kill them and will merely take a nice slice out of a growing economic pie, I think they'll put up with uh, 
a lack of freedom. And uh, I think the the long run strategy there is a bit is a bit uncertain. It's a bit dangerous, right? It's not obvious if you're not if you're not lucky, you get no economic, you get no political freedom, and you're you're poor, which is what a lot of times happens. That so. happens also, and of course, I would also like to distinguish between we cannot put everybody in the same among dictators or people who actually are authoritarian leaders and so on. You have one extreme, which is of course Stalin, and I've read, I mean, studied Stalin quite a lot, and that's the situation there that you have, particularly in the latter part of his rule, and naked tyranny, which actually is a tyranny not over the people. People only, and of course, you know, approximately, I think, one million people at the peak of uh, repression. One million people annually were either some executed, many of them put in jail, and in exile. So it's about one million out of that that time. Uh, the Soviet Russia, I think, had about 170 million people. So it's a really high percentage. It's every year you have like one million people who... And you, you know someone in that group. Or you have a friend who has a friend in that group. Yes, in that group. It's enough yes, people yes. that it's not like something you've heard of. Absolutely. It's in your daily life. Absolutely. And at the end of Stalin's rule in 1953, 3% of the population was either in exile or in jail. So this is one th- sort of tyranny. However, if you look at China today, if you look at uh, Singapore, if you look at what I was saying before, Vietnam and others, you have a much softer tyranny. And actually, in that case, I think uh, smart uh, autocratic rulers would let many of the decisions be taken by others. Only the key decisions that relate to their power or to the maintenance of their system or the cronyism would remain. The danger, I think, that my slide point, the danger is how do you control the cronyism? It creeps. It, it creeps. creeps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I saw a video the other day, it was on Twitter, of uh, somebody put a large portrait of Putin in an elevator, uh, a huge portrait. And so people would step onto the elevator and be confronted by this. And he also put a video camera. I don't know if it was staged or not. It didn't look staged. But these people, you know, when they saw it, there were different reactions. Obviously, we didn't see every reaction. The film was edited to make the more amusing ones, the more shocking ones of the people who cursed and said negative things. But I don't know if people realize anywhere in the world uh, whether – I don't think people realize that in the time of Stalin, cursing at that portrait could put you in in the gulag for 20 years or 10 years, which was a, often a death sentence. Not just like, no, oh, right. the 10 years of life are gone. No, you're going to die. You're going to be worked to death in cold weather without shoes. And it, it's a, it's a um, – you have to be careful what you wish for. Uh, and I think um, – Anyway, but I think actually people nowadays, I have to say many people, young people especially, uh, don't really n- know the distinction between these different types of tyrannies. You know, they are like, as I said, Stalin was the extreme where I mean, the, the portrait like that or even actually sort of making any derogatory remark, even even your friends over, would actually yeah. would lead you to five or ten years in jail. And actually, as you said, actually probably to death because you could be actually sent to the uh, what is Verhutak, for yeah. example, camp uh, Kolima which were you were working in a sub-zero temperature for forever. So uh, that's something which obviously doesn't happen now. But 
I want to say also that the problem of keeping corruption in check is very difficult and it's actually very easily seen in the case of Chinese uh, uh, rich people, many of them linked to the Communist Party or actually being the members of the Communist Party, the behavior, their own behavior and the behavior of the kids. Remember the stories about uh, rich kids driving uh, Ferraris, many of these kids being sent here to the United States with you know extremely uh, luxurious lifestyles. So it's very difficult difficult to keep this in, 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 um, uh, in some kind of order. And, of course, I've read and I've seen myself when I was in China that the situation now looks a little bit different because that's a kind of open, ostentatious display of wealth is very much frowned upon. And so people know, not frowned upon you, but actually get in trouble. Maybe you would get lose your job or maybe you will be demoted. So people are much more aware of that now under the campaign. Now, you talk in the book about what are the, what's the likelihood that China will try to export its system? We know that the so-called Belt and Road Initiative is uh, providing infrastructure in poor countries. Um, the social credit scheme that they're testing, I don't know how real it is yet, uh, that we talked about with Amy Webb here and, and others, uh, is an exportable system that is deeply appealing to a lot of tyrants. You said it's a soft tyranny, by the way, but if you're religious person in China. I don't even know how to pronounce the name of the group that starts uh, the with Uyghurs, the U. Yeah, yeah. The, what are they? The Uyghurs. The Uyghurs. Yeah. Uh, they're not so soft. So, uh, so one, are they going to export this mix of soft, hard tyranny with this social control, do you think? And uh, does it alarm you? Should, they should were, we be alarmed? Yeah, whether they would, you know, that's a very difficult question to answer. And really, I'm not a, a sort of a China expert, you know. But historically, China had not exported its model. It was, it was very happy to be essentially um, uh, a country that would, uh, that would get tri- tribute from the tribute from the neighboring countries that would be seen uh, the, as the center of the universe. But it was not actually eager to uh, exports to export its ideology and power now of course when people speak of that they of course always use uh, as a, a contrast uh, a chinese um, fleet which in the 15th century actually did a number of voyages and essentially went uh, with large fleets, much greater than the fleets that the Europeans, Portuguese, the Spaniards, others, um, others were able to put together. The, the uh, Chinese fleet had much bigger ships, many more people. It's actually running into ten or 15,000 people who would actually went on these voyages of expedition. But the objective was uh, essentially to project the power, to, I mean, in a mild way, to go there, to bring some goods, not even to open the trade routes. Like a parade. Like a parade, <laughs> essentially like a parade. And then, of course, it came to the end because it was very expensive. They essentially decided after the, I think it was the end of the 15th century, they decided to close themselves down and they burned the ships. And actually, what was also interesting, they burned all the records of the voyages. So what we know is really very fragmentary compared to what existed. So that's the argument. Uh, however, I think actually that was the past. That was, you know, 15th century. China went through this period of of, um, of closing itself, of of um, um, 
all Turkey. Uh, the, the situation now is different, and, and the Belt and Road Initiative is really showing an ability to think big. And actually, I'm very much in favor of the Belt and Road Initiative because I think the West has actually, to some extent, forgotten uh, the idea of thinking big. I mean, if you look at the before uh, World War I, uh, the idea, so for example, uh, uh, Berlin-Baghdad Railroad, which now seems to us really like sheer fantasy. Yeah. But you know, Baghdad would have been in Iraq, would have been much better off now if there was, I mean, I'm not saying that road itself would make a difference, but it would have shown the integration, general, no. integration of the part of the world, which is a crucial and very important historical part of the world, like Iraq and Syria and all that, with Europe. And we don't do that anymore. And also, last point, I, I, since I worked in the World Bank for 20 years, I know that as well, uh, the, 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 there was a significant shift towards so-called soft uh, you know, lending, and you basically lend to the governments, the governments decide whatever they want to do with that money, but the other things you organize are conferences, infrastructure, I mean, building of social infrastructure, all of that. You don't do anymore dams, roads, uh, um, uh, factories, and things of, the, like, of that nature that China is doing. And I think that's actually infrastructural investments are very important. So I want to turn now to what I actually think is that I, I, I'm sure listeners have enjoyed what we've been talking about. Uh, but to me, the most interesting part is the last part of the book uh, about what capitalism does to our, um, I would say, to our psyches and our, our social and, and, and spiritual selves. But before I do, I want to get one th- more thing in, if I could, because uh, I thought it was so interesting and I hadn't thought about it. You're talking about globalization and how – I'm going to put it my way. This is, the way I, this is what I learned from you, and you tell me if I've, if I've interpreted it correctly. And I, what you're doing here is you're really integrating work of Robert Allen and Richard Baldwin and the way they looked at, at globalization. And so let me try to put it where I can think about it. In the past, the wealthy nations went to visit a poorer nation to exploit it. They extracted natural resources. They sometimes enslaved the people who lived there. They sometimes brutalized them in terrible ways. The, the colonial imperialistic past of the West is not a, not a pretty picture. Uh, sure, some good things came of it for the native populations, not many. Um, certainly not at the time. What has changed with globalization, and that, that was a form of globalization, right? That that, that you, you sent your ships out, uh, you went, you were Columbus, or you were whoever, and and you explored the rest of the world, and you often dominated it militarily and then economically. What what changed somewhere along the line, which I found so interesting, is that once these poor economies got integrated into the global supply chain, the host. The richer nations and the economic players within those nations had an incentive for the first time to improve the technologies there on the ground overseas, over there. And you talk about the disconnect between consumption and production. What's produced over there is now consumed here. That's a big innovation. But there's this other innovation of what's produced over there is monitored and managed from over here. And because of that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that things that I would never have cared about before, which is whether they have access to world-class technology, suddenly I have an interest and incentive to do so, and that's going to inevitably lift up their standard of living. And, and what I think about is that you know, that a, a sweater factory in China 50 years ago was a group of women with knitting needles, literally knitting sweaters by hand. It's not anymore. It's not a sweater factory in Mexico anymore. It's not a sweater factory in Indonesia that factory is, looks like a factory anywhere in the world. 
and and the exporting of technology because of the globalization of supply chains is a story that I didn't appreciate until I read your book. Do I have that roughly correct? No, you, you have it absolutely correct. Uh, I have to say that actually the, the gist or the most of that story comes from Richard Baldwin. Uh, and I think it's absolutely true because it actually shows that being integrated into global supply chains mean, uh, solves the problem, quote-unquote, which existed in the past. Because I'm old enough to remember, for example, in the 70s and the 80s, there was permanent complaints by the third world countries that the rich countries are really unwilling to share technology with right. them. What the global value chain does is gives the incentive to the original company in the West to actually share best technology with the company, with actually people working in a poor, poor country. And what was also interesting there, that was actually work of, of Bob Allen. Bob Allen actually looked at the, the sort of technological advances and so forth, and actually he found very interesting result that at very, as countries, for example, I take the United States, the U.S. today doesn't have really any incentive to improve technology at the level of wage, which is like $1 per hour, for example. So what Bob Allen found is that countries which are actually still poor today, in the past and still now, really do not have technology that is appropriate for improvement in technology which is appropriate for their level of development. So they go, have to really go back to the technology which might have existed like 150 years ago in this country. But what global value chains do is they actually have an incentive to find the appropriate technology for that country at that level of wage rate because they are paying that level of wage rate. So, you know, when I see all these issues now with China uh, stealing so-called stealing um, uh, intellectual property rights and technology, not only is it also done oftentimes by the American companies because they wanted to, do, uh, to have access to Chinese market, which is, of course, all very often the case, it's because they often really care about the, comp- uh, the factories there because they are part, integral part of their own company. So the analogy I was laying in, I finished your book last night, I'm laying in bed, and sleep thinking about it, trying to get prepared for the interview today. And I, I came up with a very um, – it, it's, it's not a good analogy, but I think it illustrates the point in a certain way. I've used this, this before. In a poor country, a garbage truck is a simple truck, might be a cart pulled by an animal even, with a bunch of labor, four or five, six right. people collecting garbage off the street in all kinds of ways, loading it onto the truck. So the capital labor ratio is – the capital is very low, the labor is very high. In America, there's an extraordinary piece of equipment, this garbage truck. It's driven by – usually yeah. it's got one driver. Sometimes there's a second person, but there doesn't have to be. Sometimes there's two more people, but at most there's three. The, the, if it's a really fancy truck, it actually has an arm that comes out and picks up the garbage, throws it into the truck by yeah. itself, and the people are there just to make sure it doesn't get, make too much of a mess. There's no incentive for an American company to help the poor company – poor countries – crummy garbage truck, get more efficient, more effective, get better mileage, whatever it is. Like you say, they're stuck with, it might be an ox pulling a cart. In America, they're always trying to improve the arm, make the arm work quicker, make the arm work more efficiently, make it cheaper, make it so you only need two people instead of three, one instead of two. But what this is saying is, it's not a good analogy because we don't, garbage is a part of the global supply chain exactly. But the idea is the equivalent analogy would be, first, you give them our truck, (laughs) Or you give them a truck that's appropriate, you improve the truck they have because, like you say, you're you're bearing those costs. So you want them to be cheaper. It's just an extraordinarily 
powerful way to think about how the world has changed. Absolutely. It's just an amazing thing. Now, even, even your example, I mean, what the company would do, let's suppose that, that, that it owned trucks in Bangladesh, they would improve even if they would not change the number of people who, that are being uh, servicing the truck because labor is cheap. They would improve the way that they collect uh, garbage. I mean, in, rather than actually three guys maybe rushing and picking it up, maybe one would go to the other house to pick it up, the two others would go to the different house. They would actually make lots of improvements that are very difficult in poor countries to actually conceive. You know, I have a, a cousin actually who is now uh, living as a, uh, working for the U.S. Um, uh, Peace Corps in Guinea. And of course, the, what he has noticed that, and I've noticed that also in many poor countries, is numerical skills of people are very, very limited. So if you have very limited numerical skills, and people like in villages in Africa, for example, may not have numerical skills, you're not going to improve the way things are done. But a company which comes from France or the US or, or China would actually work for, with you to improve these skills. Maybe, maybe you'd want the truck to get better mileage. I mean, you talked about time. Yes. So, there's so many margins for improvement that often are just you know, limping along the same way they always have. And, and that outside technology can often, you know, be transformative. But let me just say one more thing in that yeah. sense. That also the implication, the negative implication of that for rich countries is that the companies which that they have are no longer in reality their companies. Correct. They are now companies for themselves, and they equally care about, or actually in some cases more, might care for labor in China or Burma than for labor in the U.S. So that's the implication, which is not very palatable to the people here. Right. And you have a lot of things to say about how that changes the political forces that might restrict that that force of globalization and some of the negative aspects of uh, the concerns people have about globalization today are really motivated by that exact point that they're not our company. They have our name on it. Yeah. And and of course it works both ways. You know, when when Toyota's here bragging about yes. on Twitter like they do in my promoted Twitter account of how many jobs they create, I find it a little bit annoying. But but obviously they have an incentive to be make Americans happy now. Absolutely. Which, which overall mostly a good thing, I think. Yeah. But but I understand how particular groups it's it can be painful and, and costly. So let's turn now to the last part of the book, which I, even though I found all this incredibly interesting, this is the most interesting part for me. And for a lot of reasons, I think listeners will, uh, I think you'll agree and you'll, you'll see why I find it so interesting. So in the last, I think it's the last chapter, you talk about the, the bright and dark side of capitalism. Uh, and we'll stick with the United States because for us, for me, it's the system I, you know, I know the best. I, I don't know what it's, but the analogous effects are in, say, China, where they've become more, you know, dramatically more capitalist in the last 40 years. But stick with the United States. So let's start with just what we call the bright side, which is uh, yeah. uh, the Adam Smith insights, I would say, and then the dark side. So start with the bright side. The bright side was, of course, mentioned by Smith. It was mentioned by Montesquieu, by others, is that uh, um, money-making or commercial societies, as Adam Smith called them, 
are societies that ultimately are egalitarian societies, not in the sense that everybody would have the same income, because we already talked about that, but there are societies where class distinction, which in the past existed between different orders, between different class, between nobles different and nobles yeah. and serfs, or caste system in India, they would no longer exist. It's interesting here to mention when I said caste system, that Marx, in his writings about the British influence in India, was actually very favorably disposed over British imperialism because he saw British destruction of the uh, sort of uh, feudal and feudal-like institutions of India, bringing in capitalism, and then ultimately capitalism would bring uh, working class, and the working class would overthrow the cap- uh, capitalists. He was partly right. He, he did. He you could right. argue yeah. he foresaw yeah. the the current modern state of India, but not exactly. But anyway, no, no, he, he was actually right. And actually, what the one was saying, he mentions particularly the the fact that that capitalism dissolves all these a sort of uh, legal and non-commercial institutions that have been, of course, there in existence for millennia and actually kept large parts of the population totally without any rights and in the worst possible conditions. So this is actually the, the light side and the, the bright side of, and, of capitalism. And, and you also talk about, I just want to make sure you don't forget, because it's so important, the, the inherent empathy, that if you want to be yeah, successful absolutely. in the commercial world, absolutely. you have to put yourself in the shoes of your customers, yeah. the person you deal with. Yeah, that's actually, of course, very much in, in Adam Smith, as, as we all know. And I think it's actually why I believe that Adam Smith is particularly relevant for us now is because some of the issues that he has identified then, uh, I'm not saying that we forgot them, but they were really um, a movement. We had uh, two world wars. We had the Great Depression. We had the challenge of communist system versus uh, capitalism and so on. Uh, so we might have forgotten some of the key insights that he had at the origin of capitalism. And we are now sort of looking back at Adam Smith and actually seeing very similar things today. So uh, one of them, of course, is that you have inherently, you have to have empathy because if you don't have empathy with your customers, they are not going to buy things from you and you are not going to become rich. So in other words, that uh, what Montesquieu said, it, uh, it softens our uh, uh, manners, our behavior. It, be, it is a system which would naturally lead, and I, of course, have some doubts about that, but let me explain the logic, which would naturally lead to peace because peace is needed in order for you to trade and to make money. Uh, there are, of course, other elements which might lead you sometimes towards the war, but in, in principle, it's not a warlike system. Actually, Schumpeter had exactly the same view, even including, uh, as I said, I don't agree on that, but including the, the view of the World War I that he saw as a kind of a residue of the aristocratic behaviors of the past. So it was not capitalistic to uh, uh, destroy the machinery that was necessary for you to become rich. So that was, there are two things there really, empathy with others uh, uh, and um, uh, peace. And and anybody who's been in a restaurant in a less capitalist or at least less competitive system knows that it's it's different, right? When you walk into the restaurant in a capitalist system, the owner smiles at you because... One should have a good experience. If he doesn't, probably might not come back. You know, it's, it's uh, and, and some of that's fake, of course. But the idea that's that you have to right. empathize and and 
and be good to your fellow human beings is you know, that's but you know even technically speaking you know uh, discrimination which of course in, in the US is still present there is of course not equal opportunity for everybody but if you're the owner of a, of a restaurant you are actually going to welcome equally whoever comes in, whether he's Chinese, black, white, or whatever, because people are just bringing money. So in that sense, it's a great equalizer. Now, you can still discriminate, but it costs you. It will cost you, <laughs> that's yeah. A, that's, so, yeah. That's but, you know, thing. that's what, of course, the essential feature of capitalism, which, of course, we now is going to move, we move to the dark yeah, side, right the dark there side. as well, is that essentially you are unlikely in that case to, to destroy the, the bright side because your essential um, how should I say, motivation is profit. So yes, you can actually discriminate and let, not treat nicely somebody, but that person is not going to come back and then your profit will be affected. And you're at risk of losing the whole enterprise. Yeah. One thing to say, oh, I'll make a little bit less. I won't serve this particular clientele, but you yeah. don't, it's not running, going, a, running a restaurant is no. a hard thing to do. It's a very slim, no. not much room there no. for that kind of discrimination. Now, of course, if everyone else is discriminating, you, you can it can persist. And I just want to put a footnote in. Gary Becker understood that he gets he gets mischaracterized often, and and I've encouraged listeners to read his original book, The Economics of Discrimination, see what he actually says, mm-hmm. as opposed to what people say he said. But now let's go to. The, I, I want to say that your your bright side story is I've devoted a good chunk of my life to to making that vivid. Uh, I think it's under it's understated. It's not underappreciated would be the right way to say it. It's under talked. It's not talked about enough. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said for romanticizing capitalism because I think it has. There's a natural uh, assumption that profit is evil and profit is exploitive, and and I think we have failed to teach our children the positive side of the economic system that sustains our standard of living. So, uh, you know, obviously my, my poem, It's a Wonderful Loaf, is trying to do that. My novels try to do that. But what I, what I appreciate about your book is that you made a case for the dark side that I had to confront. And so let's talk about the dark side. And it's not the usual dark side. The usual dark side is uh, some workers don't make a lot of money under capitalism. It, there's a lot of inequality. But what you're talking about is the impact of a commercial system on your, on your soul. If I could be so bold. Yes, that's that's very, <laughs> very well, very good way of putting. Uh, let me, uh, yeah, what I would actually see somewhat dark side, and I agree that the chapter is on balance dark, is that uh, capitalist systems, we know that, have always tended to expand because if your motivation is profit, you want to expand, you move to new areas of activities. We just talked about global value chains. It's another form of expansion. We also can talk about the origins of capitalism where you actually started with people who were producing, for example, shoes at home and then eventually went to factories, produced thousands of shoes, and then were basically consumers of those shoes that they were producing. Now, the new area of activity that, that capitalism has moved to it has uh, have become activities that in the past had never been commercialized. And that's our private life. And this is the movement which is to some extent enabled by also by our wealth, by our ability to commercialize activities that we were doing ourselves or we were doing or other people in our family were doing, which actually I have to make a point there, were often done and still are being done 
for no commercial return, mostly by women. So there is a discrimination part there that I don't want to gloss over. Nevertheless, they were not done for money commercially. There was no movement of commercialization in that part. And that part, as we all know, is, for example, cooking, cleaning, taking care of the elderly, taking care of the children, taking care of your dogs, ability to actually outsource uh, many of the things that we actually do, including what I called outsourcing of the law, which I think is a very important part, is that that we now, in a system that we live in, we oftentimes believe that ethical things are determined externally by law. So it is no longer, because I think religion has become less important, it's no longer what we believe is ethical ourselves. We basically say, and I think it's very clear if you go to Wall Street, it says whatever is ethical is whatever the law says. And even if I don't do exactly by the law, but I am not being caught, it is still okay. So in that sense, outsourcing of law and outsourcing of our internal life, which goes, for example, uh, prenuptial agreements, that's basically outsourcing of you know, essentially you bring the law into your home. And so we bring the law into our home and we bring commercialized activities into our homes. And when we do that, we're, I think, essentially uh, being a, uh, uh, um, willing commercial or capitalist machines because we start computing and calculating all the things which in the past did not have an implicit price of value put on them. And then finally, we, of course, then move into creating of our personal property, which is our own apartments or homes. We create hotels of them, and we create from our cars. We create, actually, it's no longer personal property. It becomes capital in the Marxist definition because you really basically use that to make profit or money. So in that sense, our life, internal life, and very uh, sort of, um, how should they say, um, uh, uh, part of our lives, which is very personal, has become object of commercial activities and commercialization. Yeah, it's been <clears throat> the language you use, I think, which is, I hear it often from sociologists, I don't find it convincing, but from you, I find it more convincing, maybe because you speak my language. <laughs> it's a, commodit- a commoditization of everything. Yeah. You know, usually this gets argued about whether we should sell kidneys or not. I think we should be able to sell kidneys. I think that's probably a good thing in the 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 sociologists and others push back against that. Oh, it's a terrible thing. And of course, if I look at it and think, well, more lives are going to be saved, that's probably a good thing. Uh, it is a terrible thing that someone might, in economic distress, feel they have to sell a kidney, but saves a life. I'm, you know, I, I look at the full picture. Other people just say it's wrong. It's just immoral. We can't deal with it. Um, but I, but I think the the part that I found persuasive and provocative is first of all this idea that with Airbnb and Uber, for example. And which are wonder, I think are wonderful things overall. Whether Uber is sustainable or not is, remains to be seen, but I, I'm not so sure. But but certainly with Airbnb and Uber in its current state, my time is commoditized in a way that never has been available yeah. before. And you know, I, in graduate school, we're taught that the cost of your leisure, the cost of an hour of leisure, is is your wage rate. And you know, if you think about that, in 1978. That's kind of a silly statement because you can't actually make that trade. You can't work an extra hour. Certainly you or I in our current lifestyle occupations, we can't work the extra hour and and give up a little leisure and get a little more stuff. Now we can consult. We'd wave our hands. When people would say that, we'd say, I could take a different job that paid a little more, worked more hours, you know, that had more hours to it. But now 
I can go work the gig economy in theory. I could just and I meet people like this who in Uber. They say, I said, why are you? You know, there's last Uber I had. I think guy yeah. said he was a software engineer. I said, why are you driving? Well, I like to drive and make a little extra money, pay for my kids, whatever. And in a way, that's a beautiful. I think it is generally a beautiful thing. People are free to make that choice if they want. But what it does, and this is what I hadn't really thought enough about, is it sort of takes every minute of every daily life and turns it into a calculation. Now, as economists, we tend to look at the world that way. We say that's what people do. They calculate. I think they don't. But what you're suggesting is, is that the economic reality around us kind of encourages us to do that. And, and I'm, one other thing, which I found so extraordinary, tell me if you think I got this right. In, in the old days, 1950, 1920, 1860, uh, 80, 43, in the old days, forming a household was, was – incredibly rewarding financially because of, quote, two can live as cheaply as one. Now, it's not literally true. Two can't live as cheaply as one. But that statement is trying to get at the fact that there are economies of scale in the provision of these household goods. What you're pointing out, which I didn't, I didn't really appreciate until I read your book, is that because of the extraordinary effectiveness of, of capitalism, particularly, say, in provision of food, right? Food is so incredibly inexpensive. Prepared food is so incredibly inexpensive. Uh, the incentives to form that household have gone down. They're just not there anymore. Yeah. And, and the result of that is what you call atomization. We could call it loneliness, uh, and people choose it. So we can't say it's, uh, uh, it's, there's something sinister about it. But it's a social change that I didn't fully appreciate. And I'm going to push back on it I, on that claim in a minute. But, but elaborate on that point because it's really a, a deep insight that I hadn't really thought about enough. Yeah, I think that actually one. Sorry, one more thing. It's it's all about the division of labor yes. and Adam Smith's very first insight that as we start to yeah. divide labor, we can improve it and make it more effective, and we can add capital. and And here we have this, you know, at Harris Teeter, the the prepared foods extraordinary because they're preparing it for zillions of people and blah blah blah. No, what commercialization? I think you have explained it very well, so I don't need to repeat it. But what commercialization commercialization of our private lives does is puts the shadow value, shadow price on every unit of time. Because as you said in the past, you could not choose to work like eight hours and a half, or nine hours and a half, or ten hours and a half. But nowadays, you can choose whatever unit of time you want to work. Now, the result of that is that the jobs themselves become jo uh, gig jobs, many of them become, because they really are now being sold or used, actually, in very tiny units. Little which, packets. They're yeah. small packets. They are not really coming anymore, like in eight-hour jobs, or many of them don't. And now, but the, the implication, which I think is very important and which you pointed out, is once I can actually uh, sort of... Um, uh, furnish or actually satisfy all my needs through commercialization, what is the role of the family? Yeah. I think it's a fundamental question that we have to ask. And then the objective, particularly when you're wealthy enough, even, for example, health issues and needing somebody else to help you in old age, you can outsource that too. You can buy it. Yeah. We have all people's homes. You can buy. You can buy. Obviously, uh, uh, come uh, into your house. Yeah. Uh, people to come to your house and all that. So the question is then: Are our preferences such that eventually many of us would live alone? Now, let's suppose for the moment that I'm right. Uh, that the, I, I just got to interrupt for a sec. This is really the flip side of the Kosian question yes. of why the firm exists, right? Because in theory, yeah. you could outsource That's everything true. and just use the market. Yeah. And now we've come to. We've turned that. On its head, 
which is crazy. Sorry for interrupting. I haven't <laughs> thought of that, actually. I haven't thought of that because in reality, that's what we do, actually. The transaction we costs are, have gotten yes, so low so, for yeah, so yeah. many of these activities, and they're going to continue to fall with the application of technologies to the smartphone. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't thought of that. But essentially, when I said we have all become, as individuals, we have all become capitalist enterprises. And that actually, what I said, is the, the ultimate triumph of capitalism. It's not only that it is geographically wider than ever in history. It's also now conquered ourselves. And not only conquered, because I don't want to use to make this sound like somebody has conquering me. It's actually I am willing participant in that conquest because I like it and I actually have... Many advantages from that. The question, however, is that ultimately we become households of one. Of course, there are many technical issues, how you would deal with children, you know, whether you would have and all of that. But there is no doubt that if you look at the household size in the U.S. and also if you look at actually changes across time in rich countries, you have a decline in household size. We started our conversation with that. We didn't put it in the context of automation, but it really is there. You have Nordic countries where the average household size is less than two, and then you have, of course, countries that are much poorer when you cannot commercialize these activities when the household size is like in Mali 9. So out of commercialization of these activities and out of wealth, we might move toward a situation where typical nuclear households would become not a rarity, but at least would become less prevalent than they, than they are now or they were in the past. And I think it's a big social issue, and we have to reflect on that. And um, I don't have an answer to this, but I am actually just highlighting that these things, atomization of individuals, commodification, and gig economy are really related. So let, now push back a little bit. So yes. I found that very interesting. Um, and I think it, you know, as listeners know, I'm really interested in, in whether we really make decisions like economists say we do. And I think we don't, but you certainly force the reader to consider how these, um, these opportunities, which are mostly good, how they have these social aspects that we kind of don't think about much. You know, you can think about another version of it, of course, is the – use the phrase hyper-commercialization. Uh, there's a, toler a social tolerance of it because we sort of think, well, first of all, we have a prestige factor you talk about, which is if, if we keep score via wealth, that's uh, where prestige is. is how we, that's how we keep score, and so we have a respect for wealth. Of course, there's a flip side to that, but in general, there's a respect for wealth. And you could argue that the – that the rise of the tech firms in Silicon Valley and Seattle, their ability to extract our data and sell it to third parties in return for really hip, wonderful, sometimes glorious products, that exchange, most people are like, yeah, great, I'm on for it, yeah, it's fine, whatever. And, and we don't say, well, gee, yeah. this is, you know, there's something threatening about this. We just sort of say, well, of course they want to make money and, and I get the free product and it's okay. True, actually, and I think that's another, I mean, how should I say, willing participation in yeah. that. So I'm, you know, I have to be very clear on that. I'm in favor of that because I am myself participants in that. And, uh, but I, when I highlight some of these issues brought by commodification, it's simply because I'm aware it brings really potentially an important societal change for which we are not maybe prepared. So, this is my pushback. Yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. So my pushback is that, you know, culturally, uh, I think there's going to be some changes. You point out that religion has declined. Religion was one check before on the urge to, say, make lots of money. Yeah. Not so much necessarily that a rich man 
uh, you know, has to go through the eye of a needle to get into heaven. But just the idea that there's other things that matter. These are not the only things that matter. So that's a decline. Uh, and socially, we haven't come to grips, I think, with these changes. So my pushback is, is that I think it's still up to us. <laughs> you know, it, it, what capitalism looks like over the sure. next 25 years um, we're, we're interviewing, we're doing this face-to-face in Washington, D.C. on a Friday afternoon. Uh, I think it's about 1230 right now. And at sunset, I'm going to turn off my cell phone uh, because I keep the Jewish Sabbath. And I'm not going to make any money. I'm not going to drive an Uber. And I'm not going to check my stock, <laughs> my financial assets. And I'm going to spend a lot of time with my wife and our friends. And we're going to eat and sing. And it's going to be a really different type of time that's still available now it's a challenge because if you don't believe in god it's a struggle for modern people i get it so but we also see a, a pushback from secular we could call it secular religion with faiths of of non-divine origin we see the minimalist movement we see a, a where people don't want uh lots of material items they don't want a big house mm-hmm. we see pushback in the desire for face-to-face yes People are absorbed in their cell phones. Yes, it's really fun. I've, it's a challenge. But people start turning off their cell phones. They start putting restrictions on their cell phones. There are going to be all kinds of face-to-face opportunities, I think, that, that will reduce this atomization. So I think we're in a... I think we're in a transition time, and it's going to be interesting to see how we handle it. Yeah, of course, we always have, I mean, technically speaking, people have freedom. They can do whatever they like. Technically, of course, societal norms and type of societies that exist and that we ultimately do choose actually limit that, constrain that freedom. But let me sort of push back on what you meant meant with with Shabbat. I, I don't want to go into very obviously religion is a very personal emotional issue, but I still think that using economic logic is important there too because if you were poorer or somebody else much poorer and if you needed absolutely to work on that day, then of course the cost of not observing commercial activities and actually shutting all your phone and everything else would be hard. So I think we all agree uh, on that. So in that sense, wealth is a bigger is, is as I mentioned that in the book is actually actually a huge, I mean, it gives you freedom. And I, I want just a parenthetic comment on that. The reason, for example, why in communist uh, regimes you did not have private wealth, but you had wealth which you would enjoy while you were in that given function is because ability to amass wealth would ultimately give you freedom and you can just say, okay, fine, I'm going to resign and I'll just do something else. But that's not what the system would allow. So there was a logic of the system that would actually let you use wealth, you know, nice apartment, driver, car, and all of that. But once you're off, I mean, you lose political power, that's all gone. Yeah. So, this, so that's why I think wealth is, of course, extremely important for freedom. So that gives you the freedom also to disconnect yourself for a day or for a month or whatever period you want. But, of course, the less wealth you have, the less likely you are to disconnect yourself. And the higher, I mean, this is obviously Economics 101, but the higher the opportunity cost of disconnecting, of course, the less likely you are to do that. So I think that in that sense, uh, I think we still have in the background, and that's what capitalism does to us. And we talked about people who are actually in non-capitalist environment have issues. I mean, they are not numerical as, as, as people who are in capitalist environment. That was actually, David Landis actually used that quite a lot, and I rightly so. And I think Joel Mocker in the work on, on industrial revolution. Ability to calculate 
which means ability to see what is the value of my time is absolutely crucial because in the pre-industrial or pre-commercial societies that was not perceived as such the value but now we perceive it to such an extent of course as you know that lawyers in this town we are in DC today lawyers of course count in 15 minutes times and I've actually <laughs> met people who I mean literally have problems going to the bathroom because they had to 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 bill 15 minutes too high an opportunity cost yeah, yeah it's it's actually really uh, commercialization has gone so far now you mentioned to me there of course there is always pushback you know you have for example communism the pushback is you become radical individualist right you have capitalism the pushback okay I'm going to become really non-commercial I'm going to really get, get monk. involved monk on all these activities I, I'm a monk one day a week but some people are going to be a monk <laughs> but you know, I'm not disputing that, of course, you mean, these are the you know, communities that exist. There are people who kind of want to withdraw from life, commercial life, but they are marginal. Yeah, they're struggling, too. They are struggling. Right. I, I know the case, for example, somebody mentioned to me a community, I think, in, in Alaska, the people, you know, raised children there. But, of course, the issue why it was brought to, I mean, somebody told me the story, is that the parents there don't want to vaccinate their children. So the mother that they told, that about whom I heard the story, of course, suddenly had really second thoughts about joining that commune and all of that because she was afraid that their, their, her children are going to, to get infected, you know, to get actually uh, measles and diseases. So, you you know, there. I'm not saying that these communities are not important, but they they do they can have um, a sort of a life on the margins of society. People can exist there. They can stay there. Maybe spend a whole life. I kind of doubt that very often the kids would continue that lifestyle, so they may be integrated into the economy, into the uh, sort of prevailing economy. Uh, so I'm I'm not um, not really thinking that this pushback is going to be that important. Not even in climate change, but this is a different topic. Yeah, but but no, I'm I'm not suggesting this is going to be a, a you know a, I, though there might be some kind of religious revival. There's a little bit of one right now, but but I, I think the culture, the non-religious part, the uh, norms of how to interact with both your smartphone and this potential for constant commercialization of your time, your home, your car. I think other norms will evolve that perhaps will fight against those. No, it could be. You know, obviously, we don't know. I, I just think that the logic of capitalist development that I mentioned before is, is twofold. One is that territorial expansion, which actually has now covered the entire globe. You know, practically, I mean, Cuba is even to some extent. I, I know in property terms, it's not capitalist economy, but it does actually have a large segment of the economy that is, of course, uh, working based on U.S. dollars and foreign uh, foreign currencies, the euro and so on. People running restaurants out of their homes. Yeah, so it's really... So, uh, so that's geographical expansion. The second one that we were concerned about and we talked about, it was in chapter five of my book, is really that expansion within our private life. And uh, the, the, I see the logic of that expansion continuing because there are even more activities that can be commercialized. Now, if you ask me what, I mean, I cannot really tell you easily what they are, but and they would be found. It's a G-rated program. Yeah, it's a, yeah exactly. they, they would be found. You yeah. Know? So, you know, it's just... One last thing on this. I mean, is it really such a bad thing? Well, again, I'll give you the full pushback and the regular. Mm-hmm. You know, one side of me says, is it really such a bad thing that, that people can pick up takeout food and not have to cook anymore? Oh. And at the same time, it's this huge movement, this enormous fascination with cooking. My children are, are in their, their 20s are incredibly interested in cooking. 
They don't do take. Now they have. They also keep kosher, which makes eating out more a little, a little more problematic at times. But they're not alone. They're friends. It's an enormous universe of YouTube videos of, of obsession with with quality of prep, food preparation. This is something of a pushback against. I think this uh, counterforce against this this commodification. I I agree. I mean, I think uh, let's go back in history. We always had whenever something was dominant. To a large extent, we always had a pushback. I think this is the, the human nature that's something which actually would never change. One of the reasons that I mentioned actually why we have two types of um, um, capitalism now, an analogy that they gave historically, whenever a certain religion or way of doing things had tended to become generalized, there were pushbacks for other historical reasons, you know, split up in Christianity, several of them, split up in Islam very early on, which actually to a large extent replicates Persia versus Arab world. You know, you have, and communism too, you have Mao split up with, with the Soviet Russia. So you always had this kind of splits. So they will have a pushback too. My guest today has been Branko Milanovic. His book is Capitalism Alone. Branko, thanks for being part of Econ. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to have this discussion. Yeah, I agree. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.